This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. to the Sustainable-ish podcast. Really awesome to have you here as ever. How are you doing? Did you enjoy last week's episode with iLuna, all about habits with impact? I hope so. I hope you've been and checked out the app um, and seen if that can help to give you some little nudges to get some better and more sustainable habits in place. Today, we are talking clothes or fashion, or textiles, whatever you want to call it. But we all wear clothes, don't we? Or at least I would imagine the vast majority of us, the vast majority of the time. And clothing production is a big deal. It uses up a lot of land, it uses up a lot of water, and it emits a huge amount of carbon dioxide. So the fashion industry accounts for around 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And to put that into context, aviation is anywhere between 2 and 5%. So this is an area that is contributing quite a lot to the climate crisis. And clothing production has actually doubled between uh, the year 2000 and the year 2015 so and it's an area that is uh, growing and growing all the time and some of those clothes actually might only be worn a handful of times some even just once or maybe even never if it's something that we buy that then just sits in our wardrobe and we have buyer's remorse the whole time before uh, shamefully throwing it away. Um, And what happens to these clothes once we throw them away? They're contributing to these huge mountains of waste. So this was something I was really interested to dive into in today's chat with Sam Gillick-Daniels, who is a sustainable development researcher and lead analyst I had to ask him what both of those things meant, Um, at a charity called RAP, which is a climate action NGO working globally with government, with businesses and with citizens to tackle the climate crisis. So not only are they working um, to create a more sustainable textile industry, they also do some great work around food waste um, and around food as well. So they're a great organisation that you might not have heard of, but you might have heard of lots of the projects that they um, are instigating. So tune in to find out what the circular economy is, why we need it and how it applies to textiles, what happens to our clothes when we no longer want or need them, different models that there are for making the textiles industry less resource intensive, RAP's exciting plan to halve the environmental impact of our clothes by 2030. And then importantly for us, how we as citizens and wearers of clothes can help to reduce the footprint of fashion and a lot more besides. Enjoy. 
Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Just a quick before we start, apology in advance if there is any background noise. I've got to a tween and a teen, I think we would describe them as, um, home from school for Easter holidays. And Sam has got nine-week-old twins at home, which I'm just absolutely astounded by the fact that he is even upright and um, in any kind of functional position. So if you do hear any background noise, it's probably more likely to be mine being a pain and making a noise. Um, So apologies in advance. But yeah, let's crack on. Hello, Sam. Welcome. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I, I still can't get over how well you look. Um, having nine-week-old twins, I'm just going to be staring at you for the whole of this interview. Um, oh, it's a good thing to, I've got a face um, for radio. Saying face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> so who are you, Sam, and where are you? Uh, I'm, I'm a lead analyst at uh, RAP, the Waste and Resources Action Programme, a not-for-profit, you know, well where resources are used sustainably. Uh, what does that mean in practice? We're focusing on certain products like food and clothing, where we're trying to reduce waste, increase recycling, um, rethink consumption and production. Mm-hmm. So lots of people might think they haven't heard of RAP, but they actually might have done because you do loads of great work around sort of waste and recycling and things like that. And some people might have come across Love Food, Hate Waste. That's one of your um, RAP yeah. projects, isn't it, around um, food waste and things like that? Yeah, exactly. So uh, we we have um, one of our areas of work of working with citizens. So that's where your or I would have would have heard a rap most likely. Uh, and there are, there are campaigns, and one of them is love food hate waste, like you said. Uh, another that is also uh, hopefully quite well known is uh, recycle now. So yes. you wouldn't necessarily have the the words recycle now, but um, that that uh, swoosh that. Um, the, the arrow swoosh in a, a circle, a green uh, circle that um, denotes recycling. That that's crap as well. Oh wow! And Recycle Now is actually a great website, isn't it? And um, if you're if you've got something and you're like, I don't know if this can be recycled or where to recycle it, you can go and you can search on the Recycle Now website, can't you? And you can see what can be collected curbside near you and all those sorts of things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so what what exactly as you say, Jen, if you've got a, an item and you don't really know what to do with it, you, you type it into the recycling locator. That, that's what it's called. So if you, you do a, a internet search for um, Recycle Now Recycling Locator and, and you'll find it. So you just type in the item and, um, and your postcode and it will show you where you can recycle it or if it can be recycled. And is Love Your Clothes one of yours? Yes, it is. Um, I, I didn't mention it because we, we've done less work on that in, in the recent past. There's some very specific work, um, like uh, some repair uh, focus campaigning mm. in um, in Yorkshire recently, uh, but uh, less of our, our sort of national work. And, and mm. that's why it's, it's less well, well known in the last few years. But yes, love your clothes helping us all to better care for our clothes and make better purchasing decisions uh, to have lower environmental impact um, through keeping our clothes better for longer. And um, you say you haven't done, or there hasn't been too much of a focus on it in the last couple of years, but that's still an amazing, and I'll put that, I'll put the link to all of these in the, in the show notes, but the, the resources and stuff that are on the Love Your Clothes website are just absolutely brilliant. You know, everything from kind of sewing on a button to how to wash your clothes properly and, and loads of stuff in between. So, yeah, that's a really um, great one to signpost people to. Um, mm. And what we're going to focus on today is, is textiles and stuff. But you said you were a lead analyst. To me, that's a bit like, um, and I might be showing my age here, like Chandler and Friends. I don't really know what that means. Fantastic. And it's a good thing that Friends is uh, still relevant through uh, streaming services, isn't it? 
um, that, that people still watch that show. Yeah, no, it's a little bit like that. So what, what do I do? I, I uh, manage a team of uh, junior researchers, uh, help with their development and, and experience. And it's a bit like a graduate program where they have placements and they develop over a matter of um, a year to two years into more experienced researchers uh, to help RAS mission. Uh, and I also lead research and evaluation projects. Again, more jargon, what does that mean? So if you do something, you've got, uh, you're trying to reduce waste, um, you've got uh, an idea and you think it's going to work. The evaluation is saying, well, you tried it. Did it actually work? How, how well did it work? How mm. much waste did you reduce? That sort of thing. And then on the research side, you might say, well, we think that um, repairing clothing is good for the environment. How good? Or right. is it better than renting clothing or whatever? So yeah. that sort of thing. And, and actually, you know, I was sort of saying about all the different, I guess, consumer sort of websites and projects that you've got. But RAP don't just work with, I, I say consumers, that's a horrible way to describe us. Ord- citizens. Ordinary, citizens. Citizens, ordinary people. You do loads yes. of stuff with um, like big organisations and businesses and things as well, don't you? Yes. So um, citizens, one, one group of, of uh, people that we work with. We also with businesses and governments. So um, on the business side, we uh, throw in more, more jargon. We've got voluntary agreements. So right. we look to bring uh, a certain industry together. So say it's clothing and textiles. And we look to, to bring the businesses together to meet targets through uh, measuring their impact and then acting to reduce it. So we've got a target measure act approach. We do that as a collaborative process and a voluntary process, uh, trying to get ahead of regulation and move faster than regulation. But at the same time, I said we talk and work with uh, governments as well, that try to inform policy um, so that we've got, if you really want to simplify it, we've got the carrot and the stick approach um, and we're we're working on both sides. That's not very fair, but it's an oversimplification. Mm. Um, But we do work on both sides of the sort of voluntary leadership in business and the government regulation um, uh, sort of mandatory requirement side as well. Mm, so hopefully you're kind of hitting that that sweet spot almost I always you know when I'm talking to people and people say well it, you know it's not all on us as individuals and I'm like well of course it's not you know there's there's you know if you imagine a Venn diagram with businesses and and governments and individuals and you're kind of working with all all three there and hoping to sort of get everybody on the same page and make sure that all the all the processes that each one is doing kind of feeds into the other one to make everything work properly is that exactly simplification (laughs) no no exactly that that's the idea in in the ideal world that that's that's what what happens that we're all actors in a big system that's just throwing out more jargon again and that we're all all um stakeholders of the planet that way and we we all need to work together to improve the situation that we're in at the moment yeah so how did how did you get involved or how did you start at RAP? Have you always been into, into sustainability? What's your background? I did a, a, an undergraduate degree in, in classics, so Latin and ancient oh, Greek. Wow. But uh, yeah, no, that, that wasn't going to be my career calling. Um, I, I sort of realised <laughs> that. Is there a career calling on. one can do with classics other than go and teach classics in ancient Greek? I yeah, <laughs> academia for sure. Um, yeah. Oh, you can be a sort of television personality. I'm Mary Bill yes. is an academic and, and uh, a sort of a personality as well. So maybe that could have been my lofty career aspiration. Um, but that, that wasn't for me. So uh, I had a sort of um, an interest growing up in sustainability through my mum telling me to turn off the lights and that sort of thing. And when recycling was coming in the late 90s and being told, oh, you know, we need to recycle that because it's better and, and mm. not really paying much attention no. to it, but just sort of following my parents' instructions. Um, but 
actually that did motivate me and, and uh, it's something that was I was interested in. I didn't realise that it was a career until mm-hmm. after I'd sort of picked my subjects and mm. all of that. But uh, anyway, long story short, I'd sort of through privilege and connections managed to get some experience in the area then did a master's uh, and um, some volunteer work in different uh, countries to see what uh, rather than just reading about what life was mm. like go and try to experience it uh, before ending up at, at RAP really bit of a, a very career but uh, most of it's been in in sustainable development sustainability wow so so um when you said you've sort of been and, and traveled to sort of experience it, what where where have you been and what kinds of um things have you seen and I guess and how has that informed what you now do? Um it's a very good question. So at the time before uh, I dislike the term went traveling because I think it's sort of maybe it's my own biases and, and insecurities that makes it sort of seem like I was going on a jolly. Um yes. that I was working for uh, a research institute in London and in, in um, investigating how smallholder farmers in Africa could improve their lot in life essentially mm. and it felt so wrong to be summarizing other people's work and trying to put some sort of narrative to it without having any first-hand experience mm. um, even though that's sort of what secondary research is is you, you mm. make sure you don't incorrectly report but how can you objectively look at secondary research if you have no frame of reference for it? So secondary research is is kind of looking at the numbers someone else has collected and... If it's numerical, yes, but it's looking at at what someone else has done and summarising it to something else. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, you might have a question that's... What's the best way for farmers in Africa? It's massive generalisation again. Mm. Um, so even sub-Saharan Africa, massive generalisation. What's the best way for them to, um, or what's the best crop for them to grow to increase their livelihoods mm. and um, improve their food security? Now, I, I could do that by just reading a lot of articles and mm. secondary research and reading the research of other people, other academics, other investigators and then summarizing their findings and that's perfectly legitimate but without any frame of reference for that how do I know what they're really talking about do I understand everything that they're writing Mm. and my conclusion was I don't and I should try if that's Mm. where I was was interested in so went to work and volunteer depending on the organization that I was able to get in touch with um, in Tanzania, Malawi, and Ethiopia and in between that um, visited some friends who were researching um, in other countries as well so Uganda um, and and there was a a bit of a jolly to Zambia. (laughs) We don't don't mind you having a bit of a jolly (laughs) so kind of all that leads to to where you are now this this lead analyst job and what we I said at the very beginning what we're going to talk about today is is sort of focused on textiles um, and this idea of a circular textile economy, but I guess we need to take a step back from that to start with and think, well, what even is a circular economy or the circular economy? We might have sort of heard, as you say, this sort of jargon before and not really quite understand it. Can you explain that in a way that I might understand it, please? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll certainly try. I think it, it's the more you're in it, the more you think that it's simple and it's really not. But mm. I'll try. 
So at the moment, hopefully everybody sees that we buy and consume and use products and that most of us will realise that they're made from something, whether that's mm-hmm. grown, if it's food or, uh, or extracted um, in the case of plastic products from oil, metals, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And it basically comes from the ground. So we, we take, we then make, mm-hmm. uh, we use or consume, and then we discard or, or throw away. And, and it's what we call, um, in, in the jargon side of things, a linear process. It's, it's a lot, it goes from in one direction. Yeah, the, what we we use sort of ends up in the ground again. So you sort of say, well, isn't that a circle? Not really. That's not what we mean. That, that um, it, it goes in one direction. You don't then take it out of the ground again and use it. So the circular economy is essentially oversimplifying that sort of thing, that we're trying to get back what we've used. So instead of it going in a straight line, at various points in that line, we bring it back to an earlier stage. So to give a, a, a much more understandable example, if we're talking about a type of a product, a T-shirt, if we get to the point where it's got lots of holes in it, we could throw it out. A circular economy would see it being repaired or the fibres recycled and made into a new T-shirt. Mm-hmm. If it isn't uh, too damaged to be worn, we're looking at resale or rental of that. And these are the sorts of business models we're looking at. Mm. Then there are other things like the much more complex of uh, can we um, make clothing out of something that is sufficient to compost back down into growing cotton, you know, those sorts of things. So that's still a circle where when we throw it away again, it still makes something new. But um, that's the concept. I don't know if I've uh, succeeded in making it understandable or still far too much jargon my sort of limited understanding is linear economy stuff comes in at one end and goes out at the other and nothing to then to do with each other at the at the start and the end but there's this circular economy and and am I right in thinking that you know we talk about resources kind of staying in the loop so it's kind of this idea that as you said like a t-shirt the fibers from that t-shirt will be recycled to be made into another t-shirt rather than sometimes what we tend to see with a lot of recycling is you know and especially with plastics that stuff is sort of you know a, a milk bottle might not always be made into another milk bottle it's probably goes off and be a fleece or a park bench yeah like that, and that's a kind of not quite the ultimate goal that we're aiming for. so so let, let's let's get more complicated so <laughs> we, we have, we've got oh closed loop and open loop recycling where you have something closed loop as a t-shirt becomes a t-shirt again Open loop is where plastic bottles become, I don't know, some insulation material. Mm-hmm. Um, in the ideal circular economy, you're trying to keep resources at their highest value for the mm-hmm. longest time. What does that mean? So it does mean different things to different people. But if you think the most valuable thing in a product's life is probably the, the product itself, it's mm-hmm. not the materials that went into it. So you're trying to keep the T-shirt being a T-shirt for as long as possible. Then you're trying to get the maximum value materials out of that uh, to make a new t-shirt so instead of composting it mm-hmm. you're trying to make a new t-shirt immediately and then at the the last you're trying to make that uh, into nutrients for a new t-shirt mm. for example then you could be opening that loop out to say well if that doesn't really make sense from an environmental perspective then it might be better to make some pillow stuff in from it right. instead yeah, so yeah, you're yeah. still you're still keeping that material mm. at its highest value possible for the longest right. time possible and so it hadn't even occurred to me that with textiles 
that this was a, a sort of possibility that the fibers can be broken down and kind of used again. And I'm sure for a lot of people, they're thinking, well, I don't, I don't really understand. And, you know, this is because I don't really understand how textiles are made and all that sort of thing. But like that, that's possible. Is it my cotton t-shirt can go and be, have waved a magic wand at and be weaved into another cotton t-shirt once it's past its use is that or is that again yes so it's a very qualified <laughs> yes so it can, it can be um that this even this sort of strays beyond my level of expertise but you've got uh mechanical and chemical recycling of various materials if we're looking at textiles um you can mechanically recycle recycle cotton into cotton again uh depending on the technology that might shorten the fiber so you get different um, you get a different feel and right. different sort of properties from your garment of recycled, mechanically recycled cotton. You could blend that with virgin cotton as well, especially if it's sort of organic and um, with regenerative farming practices, that could be a good compromise mm. where you're you're reducing your burden on the planet through growing less cotton mm. by keeping some of the mechanically recycled cotton, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then the other side is chemical recycling you it's like putting some acid on something massive mm. oversimplification yes. again you put some acid acid on some metal and it dissolves or whatever yeah. uh that cotton would turn into a what's called a cellulosic material mm. and then you can turn that material back into a fiber so it's not cotton anymore it's a human-made cellulosic or you might see written down man-made cellulosic fiber okay so, so like viscose it's, yes, uh, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. can be from you could have recycled viscose coming from cotton or you could have virgin viscose from say wood pulp yeah and is part of your role and the sort of research that that you guys do trying to make sure that these recycling processes aren't you know are less energy intensive than producing the raw material and you know all when you especially I think when you start thinking about chemical recycling and things like that you start thinking oh gosh well that sounds really quite harsh and quite environmentally damaging and presumably there's somebody somewhere checking that the maths adds up and that we're not sort of creating more of a problem by recycling stuff. Yeah so you've got your um you've got your two sort of driving empathy you've got your impetus from one side and another you've got one is that um we know that something needs to change because we're consuming more and more and the impact of that is getting larger and larger. We, we have to change. But on the other side, we don't want to change into something that's going to be as bad, worse, mm. or maybe not as bad, but still not good. And the theory goes that recycling has got to be part of the solution because we're never going to be able to do everything through one magic mm. technology. Mm which also means that recycling isn't the magic technology as well. Yeah, yeah. So our work would be looking closely to see that we'd encourage recycling in the first place, but we'd be looking closely to see uh, usually other organisations conduct studies that will evaluate how impactful or how bad or how good uh, different recycling technologies are. And we would be saying to our stakeholders, the research suggests that you would, we, you would be using this technology rather than that one. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Now, I'm super aware that like we're jumping around all over the place. And I know I was thinking, yeah, we didn't actually talk about why we need to be worried about a circular economy for, well, in general, I guess, um, but specifically for textiles. Take us through some of the headline figures of um, the impact of the textile industry on the planet. Yeah, so, I mean, there are lots of stats 
flying about. The main message to take away is that we're consuming more and more clothing. We're, we're buying more. More is mm. being made. Um, whether that be in the UK or globally, it's, it's the same. We're actually consuming. We're con- contributing less to that consumption in the UK than globally, but still, that's um, it's increasing. That has an environmental impact, and I'll, I'll throw out some stats in a second. But I just want to have the, this, the main message: we're, we're consuming more. That has more environmental impact. And we need to change how that that works because mm. it's contributing massively to uh, the carbon footprint of, of all of us and um, will make meeting our uh, climate targets mm. harder. So what does that mean in practice? In terms of consumption, um, the most common stat you may have heard is uh, clothing consumption uh, production, sorry, has doubled between 2000 and 2015. Um, wow. And that's worldwide. I mean, I know the population has increased, but the population hasn't doubled in that time, has it? So No, I mean, we have got billions more people, but with, again, oversimplifying a lot of that increase in, in, um, increase in population is in lower consuming areas. Right. So where uh, birth rates are highest are in the lowest uh, income countries on the whole. So... Lower income usually equates to lower consumption. Um, So it's not just the population's increasing. Yeah, and and my understanding, and and this this may be completely wrong, you know, a lot of that increase in consumption and increase in production of clothing is driven by this sort of fast fashion model and that that is a sort of developed world, um, you know, air quotes first world sort of problem, or is that not correct? As far as I'm aware, that the fast fashion correlates to higher income countries. I haven't seen anything. It's now questioning myself because I take it as a given. So it's, yeah, I would agree with you. I haven't seen anything that would back that up Mm. in terms of hard stats and research. And fast fashion is an interesting one. If we if we take the term uh, to mean um, greater volumes at lower prices, then yes, mm. that that's right. But the, there are some companies that would argue about the definition of fast fashion because they say that the one I just gave applies to them, but they think they're not as bad as some others, which is right. a, say just in time produced to dispose of type of supply chain. So I won't mention any companies but you'll know the ones that Mm. you see something on instagram from an influencer and within a week it's available at 10 pounds on a website Mm. so that 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 that's one side of it and then there's the other side which is the decreasing cost of fashion and increasing number of collections per year Um, so depends what you call fast fashion but the whole industry has increased its production and that's what is shown in the stat yeah yeah. So what happens to all these clothes then? So we're producing more and more clothes. We're wearing more and more clothes. Consuming um, is possibly not quite the right word, but I guess people will understand that. Well, you know, consuming more and more clothes. What happens to them at the moment at their, it's not even end of life, is it? Like when we've had enough of them and we're bored of them. Yeah, so so we, I think I don't actually have the start to hand, but we, pretty good in the uk of it depends where you count the end of life again that we're pretty good at when we've had enough of it giving it to a charity shop essentially so that's a a relatively high proportion of clothing and again i apologize i don't have the stats at hand 
in the UK um, that we, compared to some European countries, we donate a lot. So that's good because those organisations um, work to make sure that, that clothing is worn again. And if that clothing can't be worn again, that organisation still works to try and maintain the value. You know, we're talking about the circular economy. So mm. they'll, they'll um, work with, either they have their own or they'll work with um, companies that uh, reprocess or uh, sell on to other, call other markets, meaning countries where there is a lower availability of new clothing, but still demand for new clothing. Mm. So going back to an earlier question about my experiences, I saw uh, used clothing markets in Tanzania um, on uh, on a mountain in northern Tanzania where the big bundles of clothing that had been exported from other countries. Um, I could tell some of them were from the US based mm. on the uh, the names of um, the states on them, mm. uh, branded uh, sort of um, label clothing. Uh, but I'm sure that they came from all around the world. And um, it's like a, a market for used clothing and people would be bidding and on, mm, mm. on items for relatively small amounts of money in our country, but significant amounts in there to get high quality clothing. Anything I saw was in perfectly good condition. Uh, it might be a bit faded, but uh, that, that's what happens to it if, if they don't think it can be sold and it's still usable then. Uh, on the other hand, the, there's clothing that isn't usable and that would be turned into rags mainly. The recycling of clothing is relatively small over uh, the entire world and in the UK as well. So I've read a stat that, you know, when we, we donate our clothes to the charity shop and our assumption is that it then gets sold on within probably that actual charity shop in my town, um, you know, and um, jobs are good and, and well done me and aren't I great for donating my, my clothing. But one of the stats I read, and um, I don't think it's, I can't remember what date it was from, it's from a few years ago, was that only between 10 and 30% of clothes donated to charity shops actually ends up being sold kind of within the UK. Do you know if that's still a sort of relevant? Um, 60% of textiles collected for reuse and recycling is exported from the UK. Wow. So similar to, it's not the same at all with what you just said, but that, that's what we would recognise as. Okay. So whether we put that in our council curbside collection or we put that in a textile bin at the supermarket or we give it to a charity shop, Mm -hmm. 60% will be exported. Well, I mean, if we take it the other way around, any one of us, how much of our clothing do we buy from charity shops? Mm -hmm. And on population average, that is between, depending on what we've seen in different surveys, we're not 100% 100% sure, but that's between, say, 2 and 10% of clothing that's wow. bought from charity shops. So how can mm. everything that we pass on also be sold back to yeah. us? We, we just it can't. The numbers don't stack up. So that's yeah. why. So that all sounds great that, you know, we're donating this stuff and it's either being sold back on to people like me who go and shop exclusively in charity shops or, you know, being shipped abroad. But there have been sort of reports coming out, haven't there, of these sort of clothing mountains accumulating and the fact that in a lot of these developing countries that they're they're kind of, you know, because we're consuming so much, they're overwhelmed with the volume of clothes that's coming. And often the fact that it is this very sort of poor quality, not particularly made to last fast fashion type stuff. Is that something that, that you're starting to see as well? 
Uh, it's something that we're aware of. We know that we need to investigate more. We don't need to. I think it's it, there's some element of wanting to investigate greater rap um, for the work uh, that we do in the UK. There's a question of should we just look within the UK or, or look at what happens elsewhere? Is it enough to say it's collected for reuse and recycling, or do mm. we need to know how much it's actually recycled? Well, it's a bit like um, um, you know happened a few years ago with the plastic, wasn't it? Where we're all happily assume it we're washing out our plastic and putting it in our recycling bins diligently, and then the, the sort of realization that it's just being shipped off and stacked up in big piles by the side of the road in um, China or somewhere, and then actually. Yeah, or wherever. um, Transparency, I guess, in the change, isn't there? Yeah, so I think there are a few initiatives that hopefully will help with that. Will they help faster enough? The the idea of a digital product passport is uh, for for lots of different things, Um, not just clothing, that you'll be able to track a garment, in this case, through its, its life cycle. And that there will be some element of traceability, mm. the, the usual jargon and, and zeitgeist again for this, the blockchain um, mm. then helps where you, you, you can add wearers and, and owners on through blockchain and, and everybody gets very excited. How quickly is that going to happen? I don't know. I, I'm never very good for predictions, but uh, mm. I, I certainly think that's further away than some of the other things that we can do immediately to help. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds... Super simple. Like we're consuming too much. We've all just got to consume less. Why isn't it? Why isn't it that simple? Uh, well, I mean, our, our whole world economy is based on economic growth. So, yes, we do need to consume less, but we we also want to generate more wealth and value at the same time. So it, that sounds a bit more complicated, right? How do we buy less if we're simplifying consumption but earn more how does that work what how does that work so this is where the the idea of the circular economy comes in that you're generating more value but you're decoupling that you're unlinking from the resources that are extracted so translate that into something hopefully more understandable that if you make a t-shirt and you buy it once and then you throw it away that's You've only there's only um, the revenue for a company that sold it that's mm. only generated revenue once. If you rent out that T-shirt multiple times, you've only made it once, but you're generating revenue every time. Mm. Yes, the revenue that you generate per rental period is likely to be lower than the amount you sell it for, but over time you're generating more revenue for the same resources, and that's mm. where you, you talk about this decoupling of resource extraction resource use from revenue generation now so I we know, can consume um, sort of similar amounts or hopefully a little less but still have that variety that yeah that sense of expression uh, and we're decoupling that uh, from resource use and, and everyone's still making money so that's the theory everyone's happy yeah and <laughs> <laughs> um, now the, the the example that there's a couple of examples that sort of spring to mind for me there's is it mud jeans that do this no, quite a few years. The mud, there's a nudie, um, and then uh, the companies that own Brownstone, Levi's and Wrangler are looking into their, their own types of... Oh, wow. Of, uh, yeah. Um, then, not necessarily in this country, though. So. <laughs> oh, really? And then and then I guess a slightly different model is something like um, people might have seen uh, The Little Loop on Dragon's Den, and I interviewed Charlotte um, last year for the podcast, and, this idea, and she does it with children's clothes. Yes. And, you know, and so she'll have... A relationship with 
Frugi or um, whoever it is and 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 to, to buy clothes from them and then they sort of rent them out to parents with growing children and things like that and you know that seems like a really sensible kind of business model especially for something like children's clothes and stuff like that so it feels like there are companies that are starting to do this but do you think it's something that can go mainstream? So the research that we've done suggests that the resale side or um, re-commerce so the, the term that's sometimes used, buying something back and selling it again, and that's more culturally acceptable in the UK than the rental is. Oh, okay. So we saw that that resale would be acceptable to you know, four in ten people. Just, just pick an example, because you mentioned Levi's and I don't know if this is the model, that, but just as an example. So I would buy a pair of Levi's, I would wear them till I was bored with them, and then I would sell them back to Levi's and they would put them in their seconds or their reuse shop or whatever. Is that is mm-hmm. that kind of how it would work? Sort of. I mean, we, we the, the model that we were looking at was um, if you had, uh, it was more that in the first place you would be buying your jeans, say Levi's again, um, from the part of the website or the shop that mm. just said this is certified reuse or whatever yeah, yeah, you yeah. want to call yeah. it so that they've guaranteed it. But, and you see that in other industries at the moment. There are websites that sell exclusively reconditioned mobile phones and computers. Oh, yeah, yeah, Obviously yeah, yeah, a completely yeah. different product because they've got a different sort of mm. um, use and value and all sorts of things. But there's that that you're buying something that's perfectly good um, had relatively high value and could be used longer it mm. just needs to be given a bit of love and attention and then it's sold back at a lower price than it would be new so how how does that differ then from using an app like vinted or something like that to then you know buy something it's else? all part of the same thing really okay. so vinted is looking at how to facilitate um you and i selling our clothing to each other mm. and then making a bit of money off each transaction um, what I was talking about before was a, an individual brand looking to maintain its brand, but still generate revenue from right. those transactions. So yeah, they, yeah. they would buy it and sell it, but it still be all within their own brand envelope. And then there's also other ones where we pick Levi's again, that they would sell their competitors. They would sell jeans. Oh, and it okay. didn't matter which brand it was. It was a reuse yeah. jeans. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, I interviewed someone from Vivo Barefoot, they're a, a footwear brand and they've, yeah. they've got a whole WeVivo um, sort of site where, where they do exactly that, where they you send them back your old shoes and they will recondition them and put them up for, for sale on a separate part of the website. So it, it you know, as some, some brands are ahead of the game on this one, maybe. I think that it will get more and more common and it's something that's palatable to us now, which basically means it will be even more palatable to us later and could mm. potentially be a mainstream way of con- consuming of obtaining yeah. clothing in this country um, so the rental side of things it's much less um acceptable now so we we looked at different rental uh, we looked at a rental model a few years ago um as a citizen survey and it was around 15 percent again I, I can't remember the exact percentage but say around 15 percent um of, of us citizens saying that we would try a rental model uh, and by rental I don't mean oh we've got a party coming up and we want some formal yes. wear it's more of a I want to rent a style so I'll go to 
um, this website and they'll say, well, what do you, what do you want to look like? Oh, I want to look like a punk rocker. Okay, fine. We'll send you four items oh, for okay. a month yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and you'll pay your subscription fee. And at the end of the month, you have to return them. So next month I can look like a mod or, yes. or whatever. So that's what we looked at. And that was only really uh, interesting to about 15% in this country. But then in other countries, so Italy had a um, much larger percentage. And then, again, the US and, and India were more interested as well. So it's depending on weird. the country. I wonder what it is about the... I think there definitely is something around the psychology of owning something that we're very wedded to, I think, in the UK. And, you know, even thinking about, you know, owning our own home is, is you know, we're told that's the kind of aspiration and the dream, isn't it? And the, this idea of just having things available when we need them, you know, and I feel it as well. I'm like, but what if I, what if I need it when I don't know I'm going to need it? And, you yeah. know, there's all, there, there is really interesting psychology around it, isn't there, I think. And that's, that's changing as well. So in the same research, we saw that, um, the largest consuming or the largest buying group um, or the most interested group were also the ones that uh, bought the most and happened to be younger. So we concluded that there may be a cultural shift from a younger generation being happier to to not have that permanence Mm. of owning their clothing. The other conclusion might just be that uh, when you're younger, you don't really you aren't as attached to, to things mm. and, and therefore uh, it's it's easier when you're younger and you want to change all the time and then you want to settle down when you get older so it, it might not be that will it will change um, overall and that the the new generation will uh, will rent all their clothing it, all we we can say for sure is that at the moment not that many people really want to rent lots of their clothing yeah 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 so I guess there's lots of different ways that the circular economy can work and specifically when we're talking about textiles because you mentioned you know repairing to keep things in use for longer and donating to charity shops and these rental models and all those sorts of things what what can we do as citizens to encourage businesses to move towards a more circular model or is there anything we can do there's always it, we're not very empowered as citizens at the moment. There is a little bit of a shift where certain brands are claiming their green credentials, and obviously you've got to be careful about those. Um, so the, there is that citizen impetus, and I think that comes more from the climate side of things, a climate emergency, mm. than the sort of sustainable clothing overall. That's my personal opinion. So people making more climate claims because of the prominence of climate change. What we can do is essentially, if we buy more, if we're buying, of clothing that have have green claims, that does reinforce the idea to brands that sustainable clothing is more attractive than other clothing. We could also buy less, and that would mean that the uh, brands would have to try to compete harder for our custom and therefore would have to think about what how they produced and and sold Mm. clothing a bit more with the greatest respect to your podcast i don't know if enough of us sort of listening to this would would be able to make Mm. that type of type of dent on Mm. things but uh, I, i guess speaking about trying to educate talk to your friends about what constitutes say a better garment and, mm. and, and a worse one wearing something for longer for sure 
if you have to or, or even want to get rid of it, think about selling it mm. um, or passing it on to a charity shop or friend family before throwing it in the bin, for sure. Yeah, so many things to, to think of, and this may well be beyond um, your remit, but one of the challenges, I guess, I come across when talking to people about fast fashion and the need to consume less and all that sort of thing is, well, what happens to the to the people whose jobs are in the textile industry and you know we know that there are an awful lot of issues with the sort of supply chain of textiles and there there are i think i think the stats i've read are you know 80% of garment workers are women a lot of them are working in uh, you know for below the uh, living or even the minimum wage in the country that they're in and um you know but they and they're having to work in those jobs to put food on the table. If suddenly mm. we're all consuming less and those jobs aren't there, like is, is a crappily paid job better than no, you know, it's that kind mm. of rock and a hard place position sometimes. And sometimes I think that's used as an argument not to try and improve things. Yeah. That, that's sort of the pedestal argument, isn't it? They're so all that, uh, yeah, the, 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 a poorly paid job is better than no job or, uh, that uh, we, if we're getting rid of jobs, well, they're terrible paid jobs. And either way, it, it's it's not great. And mm. um, what can we do? So my personal theory on this, this circular economy side of things is that if you can decouple the resource use from the revenue generation, that in theory, you can start to make better clothing with a bit more durable, requires better craftspersonship to do it. Um, and potentially pay more for it. Now, that's, that's some sort of u- utopian world, right? And I don't think that's going to happen in all circumstances, but that's the idea. Um, what we've been trying to encourage businesses to do is just to understand the potential impacts of changing. So, so what's happening now and what might happen if you change to a circular model? So one of the risks that people working with these supply chains throw up when, when we're talking about the circular economy is that, oh, well, it's going to be an unfair transition because mm. a lot of the jobs in the circular economy are in the higher income countries. And, and what that means is that you've got, you say you, uh, the stereotypical supply chain for a T-shirt might be made in, in Bangladesh or Vietnam um, for a, a lower cost uh, per hour than in the UK, US, mm. European countries. But when that T-shirt is, say, taken back in and recycled or resold, who's doing that? Well, they're workers in, in the countries of, of sale rather than the countries of production. So the jobs required to facilitate the circular economy are often in higher income countries. And therefore, the value that's being generated is not going back to the countries where those clothes were made mm. if it results in lower production because of the lower consumption of resources what happens to the the wages of those people in those countries and that's what i'm saying that we we need to understand this before we try and act Mm -hmm. so we know we need to change the system but we also need to do so in a way that's that's fair it's a just Mm -hmm. transition we talk about um some stakeholder engagement that uh, there are three sort of main principles it's inclusivity, transparency, and equity. Can you achieve that all the time? Yeah, it's difficult, but you need to identify and map your stakeholders, both the direct ones and the indirect ones. I I hear stakeholders all the time and I don't think... Yeah, jargon, right? So so what does that mean? Um, A stakeholder is someone who has a stake in what you're doing. 
Um, so an interest, right? So anyone that has some sort of interest in, in what's going on, if we're talking about the example of making a t-shirt, it, someone who has an interest in that would be the company that's paying for it, the factory owner where it's being made, the workers that are making it, maybe the government that has legislation on working rights. Mm-hmm. You can you have lots of sort of direct and indirect stakeholders. But you need to map all of this and work out who are the most important mm. ones to consider when transitioning from a, a linear model to a circular mm. model. Um, see where there's vulnerability and what what might be unfair. And, and this isn't empirical. It's not an experiment. It's a it's sort of theory, but it's done by speaking to people, working out what might happen and then asking people, is this going to be the mm. case? Then trying to work out some sort of measures to ensure the transition is just. So if I de-jargon that a little bit, is that if you're saying that the fewer T-shirts are being made, but you're suggesting that wages are going to increase because the production value or that it's a higher quality garment, then just trying to measure the wage in that country or that factory or whatever and keep checking on it, for example. That's a, a simple one. Another one might be looking at workers' rights over time some sort of transfer of skills so a brand uh, commits to upskilling or reskilling factory workers where they know there's going to be significant job loss because they're commit- they're not uh, producing as much anymore those sorts of things mm. it all sounds really complicated and i'm like <laughs> um yeah like it feels like you know a big massive ball of string that's all knotted and how do we even start to unpick it and I know there was didn't the UK government um, commission a, one of these white papers on the fashion industry recently? Uh, sort well, of we, we have um, something called in this country we have uh, something called the environmental audit, audits committee so we're looking at different industries or that this committee of MPs is looking at um, the crossbench MPs from different parties, sorry, but uh, um, they're looking at different industries and trying to audit the environmental impact Mm. of of those industries and then looking at where government policy can and should recommend to government what to do. And then uh, our legislation suggests that they have the power to demand a response from the government to their recommendations. So that's what, what it is, that they're elected representatives of us um, democratically trying to hold the government to account to improve situations for the environment. And there was a report called Fixing Fashion a few years ago, um, had a series of recommendations. There was a call for uh, focusing on microplastics and microfibers, mm. working on extended producer responsibility. So that's where the producers of the, in this case, clothing are responsible for its disposal. Um, and the full life cycle costs. A tax on uh, virgin plastic. So if you make synthetic fibres mm. uh, and it's not recycled fibre, then you have to pay some sort of tax. Um, calling for a landfill ban, working on eco-design and uh, things like a reduction in tax or increase of incentives on services rather than goods. Um, mm. Translating that again, it's uh, instead of um, penalising companies for offering repair services you're incentivizing them to do so so Mm. it becomes economically more efficient to repair your clothing than to produce new ones in theory so the government responded to that as they have to do and uh oversimplifying slightly they rejected all of the i was gonna say when you you say responded do you mean ignored that (laughs) 
again, they didn't quite ignore it. They 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 said what is happening at the moment and what is planned to be happening, and that they wouldn't specifically act on anything that they weren't doing already. I think it's fair to say, um, and that they were the things they were doing already would happen on the all, already planned for timescales. Right. Okay. So so. Thanks for, thanks for what you've done. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, here's where we agree. Here's where we disagree. We'll do this. We won't do this. Um, yes. the, the, if we take one example, they, uh, the government response quite rightly suggested that there was no evidence that um, in the specific case given by the, the Environmental Audit Committee uh, that that actually worked. So they said, well, reduction of, um, of VAT on repair services, for example. And the government said, well, the evidence from Sweden doesn't suggest that that actually works. Okay. So why would we do that? You could argue back and say, well, that's just one example. There are mm. lots of different fiscal measures that you could use to incentivize mm-hmm. the circular economy. And why don't you commission in evidence to see whether it does work or doesn't? But mm. that's that, that's the, the other side of the coin. So there are some sort of things that I, as a person, would consider very fair in the government's response and other things are quite clear emissions of, of right. uh, whether they would respond to it or not. Um, but the government is doing a lot. Uh, it's just, is that fast enough? So. Yes. They're looking at our extended producer responsibility, like I said. So that's where brands and retailers um, have a responsibility for the disposal of their own, of what they put on the market. That can also include things like eco design within it. So it's like a the biggest jargon word you ever could think of, a jargon phrase, EPR. What does that really mean in practice? And that that's why the government's having consultation on um, various products for EPR. Um, textiles is one of the ones that suggested and they're committing to do that of these five products textiles probably being one of them by 2025 so that's just a consultation they're committing to have a consultation on five products around extended producer responsibility by 2025 yes that's correct god that is just so agonizingly slow isn't it like they've been uh, yeah i mean <laughs> let's let's be honest about it it is slow i think the the what they're prioritizing is is um extended producer responsibility on plastic packaging so that's yeah. the consultation for that's happening and then the, the plans for it have um have been uh, just went out actually so that happened the plans for the consultation not even the plans uh, so the plans for the consultation or the actual consultation no, that's where it's, it's testing but, uh, if you if you give me a second i'll just um <laughs> I just find it so frustrating that, you know, it takes so long to even plan to have a consultation about something. Can't we just do it? Can't we just all agree that it's a good idea that people who are producing all this stuff have to take responsibility for it at the end of it? That feels like a massive no-brainer to me. <laughs> what do I know? It's, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, 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 I just did double check. It's the, um, the response to the consultation just was published. So the consultation's closed. Uh, you're right, it is slow, but they're focusing on plastic packaging in the aftermath of things like uh, Blue Planet. and the, mm-hmm. the But that was, I mean, Blue Planet was like 2018, wasn't it? We're four years down the road and we've just had a consultation on it. Like, oh God. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's slow. So that's why, I mean, if we're looking at more positive news, that's why RAP's trying to, to act faster. These voluntary agreements I mentioned right. earlier, if, I, if that's not cut out of the final edit, um, <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, the, we, we're getting businesses to collaborate together around targets that they then measure their impact and act to right. reduce it. And that that's we're acting ahead of EPR here. So we we've got targets on um, on reducing the the uh, 
carbon footprint of uh, clothing in the UK by 50% by 2030. Okay. Um, and uh, the water f- footprint by 30%. And that um, we are committing to do that through a roadmap of circular actions. Again, so much jargon, but essentially it's, a, it's like a, a step-by-step process along the way to 2030 to get to that target. Um, and that the actions we're taking are circular economy based, among other things. So we're committing to try to change the system as well as just doing business as usual better. So this might be a bit of a mean question, do you know at the moment what proportion of UK's emissions are textile based if you're then looking to halve them? The proportion of or what I don't personally off the top of my head. We we've done we've done some modeling of baselining for the absolute amount, but not the mm. proportion that I well, we'll we'll be able to work that out, but I don't know it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if so that makes sense. So so your what you guys want to do by 2050 is half the carbon footprint of the UK's clothes and that's through a combination of presumably industry and government legislation and consumer or is this all just work with the industry? This is work through industry so the the government legislation might contribute to that Mm. but we're looking at the impact so the government might say in 2027 just for example you you need to have 30% recycled content in your clothing Mm -hmm. But we, ahead of time, would have said to businesses that we're working with through our, our this voluntary agreement called Textiles 2030, here would be the environmental impact if you included 30, 40, 50% mm. recycled content in your clothing. Oh, okay. um, so that they could then see which actions make sense for their business to reduce their carbon footprint. And it's a yeah. shared target overall. So we are currently working with 62% of the market by clothing placed on the market in the UK. And we're looking to increase that. So Textiles 2030 has been going for almost a year. Uh, so we're, we've got over half of the, the market on board and we're looking to increase that. And, you know, when we, without naming names, there are lots of names that we do think of when we think about fast fashion and, you know, as being some of the main contributors to it. Are, are those kinds of brands on board with this or are they yet to come on? Uh, yes, they are. Not all of them. So again, if we're not naming names, that that well, I don't know. To... I'm I'm happy for you to name names. It's whether you guys are. <laughs> I'm happy. To name uh, names so the, <laughs> there are businesses. I, I won't. I won't because we've prefaced this by fast fashion. I won't. But okay. um, there are businesses that have been mentioned as fast fashion low cost that mm-hmm. are that have signed up to this. Oh, brilliant! Okay, fab. And when I guess just a, maybe maybe this is I was, I was gonna say final question it probably won't be um when we see in some in some stores like clothing recycling bins and then they're giving you you know a discount off their clothes when you bring in mm. clothes to be recycled is that greenwashing or is that part of this is it so the the competition and markets authority just release some guidance on green claims and greenwashing mm. uh and and i think i need to go back to the principles and see does this count as greenwashing? <laughs> I, I don't think it does. What what they're trying to do is to collect because there's still a gap between how much we produce, consume, and then collect for correct disposal. Mm-hmm. The businesses were trying to address that collection, so we don't have curbside collection of clothing at the moment. We do. It, we do in Wiltshire. Okay, so we, sorry, I, I, yeah, you're quite right. There's, we do not have consistently collected yes, websites yes, textile yes, yes. recycling. So for areas where that's not collected, how can businesses help right. and wrap 
uh, among others, we're suggesting to businesses will offer a take back scheme. Mm-hmm. And then that business can try to unlock it's such chucking again and so realizing how much I say <laughs> um, they can unlock value from that if they want to yeah. um, or it's just part of their social responsibility right. where they're they're offering a service that local authorities might not be um so I think take it with a pinch of salt that right it is helpful um but depending on what they end up doing with it it might just be the same as your local authority collecting it from curbside Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's just fast forward. Wave of magic one. We're at twenty thirty. Raps achieved its goal, reduced the impact of textile industry or the the carbon footprint, isn't it, of the textile industry by and the water footprint. Yeah. What What does what? How do what difference are we seeing on the ground as citizens buying clothes? So what we're proposing, based on the modelling of how we could achieve that, we would be. Some of the things we wouldn't see very much at all because some of the the reduction in carbon footprint will come through renewable energy use and production. Um, A a decent proportion would do. But then some of this the circularity side of things, the circular economy, we would be seeing more clothing sold um, through resale and rental. We'd be seeing more repair services and Mm. more durable clothing that we can wear for longer. Um, And that that will be marketed and will be more normal than it is now. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that I, I, I was feeling quite despairing, like partway through thinking, oh, my God, I don't even know how we start on this. But I love I love a big, juicy goal. I love the fact that, you know, you've, you've got this this sort of baseline of the carbon footprint and the water impact of clothes and looking to sort of half that and reduce it by 30 percent. And um, it kind of I don't know, does it feel doable to you guys? It like from my yeah, it does. Well, that, that, so we had a six month um, progress report on Texas 2030 and this modeling I've been talking about, if you are interested in numbers, go and have a look. It shows where we, we see the reductions for these, these lofty targets coming from. And it, it is doable. It's hard, but the, the assumptions for these are uh, sort of things uh, I won't say particular numbers because I probably get them wrong. I need to go back and look at them mm-hmm. and see the exact assumptions. But we're we're not saying that oh everybody rents all their clothing. It's meant to be realistic assumptions mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. say, for example, like oh one in three people rent two items of clothing a year. Right. You know that type yeah, of yeah. thing. It, it, that isn't one of the assumptions, by the way. I yes. really yeah, should yeah, qualify yeah. that. But it's meant to be sort of ambitious but realistic assumptions. Okay. That's that's the the idea of it. And the, going from we have this 50% goal, what can we do to achieve it? And then trying to look at each area of contribution Mm. and say, how realistic is that? Testing it with our stakeholders, jargon again, with the businesses (laughs) that we talk to and other interested parties Mm -hmm. um, and and trying to work out something that's ambitious but realistic. So is is there a list somewhere of companies that have already signed up that we can see or not? Yes, yes, uh, there is. So on uh, RAP's website, that's rap.org.uk. Because I'm just thinking like as it's always nice to sort of um, finish with a like, you know, concrete things we can actually do. Um, So obviously we've, you know, buying less, repairing more, keeping our clothes in use for longer, actually, you know, donating to charity shops, selling on um, when stuff really is end of life, using curbside recycling, all that sort of thing. But in order, in in terms of almost our um, sort of citizen voice, if there are particular brands that we really like and we see that they're not signed up, is there a value to us emailing them and saying, oh, I've just heard this podcast and I was had a look and you guys aren't on there. Can you let me know if you're planning? Is, is there a value to that? 
Yeah, there's definitely a value. There's definitely a value to it. I think there's a bit of uh, a tension between brands and retailers that sell globally and ones that just act in the UK. So, if you are really uh, you really like wearing something that's mainly a US company, then they may have less interest in joining a UK right. organisation. Yeah. So, your voice as a UK citizen might oh. not carry as much weight as, say, a business that sells mainly in the UK. Okay. Um, so, just to bear that in yeah, mind yeah, but yeah. certainly get in touch with businesses and let them know about Textile 2030 and your interest as a citizen and, and a um, consumer of their products that yeah. you would like them to, to join yeah brilliant and then I guess looking at brands and you know if we are buying new and things like that I think there is a degree of skepticism around greenwashing and things like that so so what labels do we look for what certificates do we look for do they actually do what they're supposed to do Anything you can help us with there? On the whole, recycled clothing is going to be better than what we call virgin clothing. It's like virgin olive oil or whatever. Mm. It's made from from, um, from virgin olive oil. But uh, the recycled clothing is going to be better than than the the equivalent from just extracting it. And, and um, so if you see recycled, say, polyester, that's probably better. Right? Recycled, recycled nylon. Yeah. Um, there isn't a oh, oh no, there are actually. Uh, so textile exchange do some recycled standards. Uh, okay. So if you see that, then or ask your um, ask your your favourite brand or retailer that's offering this, what certifications they have or okay. what, what they have. But um, the ones that are um, so that's that's to prove that this is actually thirty percent recycled and not just that they've put it on the label and it's not that kind of thing. Uh, not necessarily the, the percentage content. It's that there's that it actually was recycled rather than just claiming that it was yeah. recycled. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So then there's the on the cotton side of things. There's a um, GOTS, a Global Organic um, mm, yeah. Textile Standard, uh, if that's the right acronym. Yeah. Uh, and there's um, there's Better Cotton Initiative. Yeah. So having a look at organic cotton. Um, anything you can see that's recycled or organic is probably going to be better on okay. the whole. And just looking for those certifications and, and seeing have they got have they bothered to try to get one and it's yeah, clearly yeah, recognised. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Fab. Um, so I feel like we've got loads of takeaways for us to do um, as um, individuals. Where can we come and um, kind of keep updated with how the how the plan is going with you guys? This is a really good question because without public accountability this sort of falls by the wayside a little mm. bit need the pressure so um not quite a direct answer to your question but rap as part of this textile 2030 agreement um works with other organizations that have that and trying to hold us to account a bit like mm. a critical friend so having organizations like fashion revolution oh, or in, in other um industries that are greenpeace was helping with the plastics packs for example yes. to try to keep us honest if i yeah, use that, yeah, that yeah. type of phrase <laughs> So uh, they will try to do that. But as a citizen, um, uh, going to the website and, and reading the, the progress reports, mm. so the, the six-month progress report. Um, do you, do you communicate these pages. on social media or anything? Uh, we do, but how many people as an individual follow <laughs> rap on social media? Yeah. I think we're talking about, um, we're talking about the, the, the campaigns, right? So they love food, hey, waste, you might mm. follow that. But why would you follow an, um, an organisation you might do, you might not. So, and would you see it in all of the other things yeah, on the Twitter yeah, feed yeah. or whatever? Yeah. 
Uh, so I think, unfortunately, and there was so much noise that's around, yeah. it's, uh, it's probably going to Rap's website and having a look okay. every six months or so on the Textile 2030 site and seeing what's going on. Some of the sustainable clothing and clothing publications will do it if you're in the industry. Mm-hmm. So uh, like drapers, business of fashion, those sorts of things will report on it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there'll be wider press so like the guardian might pick it up right but, yeah, um, yeah yeah it's yeah. A, unfortunately relatively niche so and um, one of the good things about the environmental audit committee that i mentioned earlier they mentioned the predecessor to Textiles 2030 a lot as sort of the starting point for businesses to try mm. to get involved in it's called the sustainable clothing action plan so if the more people that do know about this the better mm. um talking about it with friends and, and family <laughs> is that, that too much of an action at dinner table well, I don't know but I mean you say it's niche but like we all wear clothes don't we and we're all yeah. I think aware of well maybe this is just me and my eco echo chamber but the you know I think that there is relatively widespread coverage of the impact of fashion you know as an industry and and we're kind of aware probably lots of us that we play a part in that so I you know I think it probably is something you can maybe shoehorn into a conversation here or there but um you know, yeah, did you yeah. know that many of the over half of the businesses or over half of the clothing in the UK, the businesses behind them are trying to improve the situation? Yes, mm. it's probably the conversation starter and somebody might turn around and say, boring. But if they don't, then you're onto a winner. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I always say to people, you know, if you've, if you've listened to this, just say, oh, wow, I listened to this podcast and I didn't know about X, Y, or Z. Or if, you know, if you've read something or they go to the rap website and have a look to to kind of use those little things to hook people in. And then, you know, a lot of people will be quite interested, I think. And I think it is as complicated and as knotted and uh, complex as a, a thing as it is. I think, I hope it's a relatively positive story. You know, what you guys are saying and the fact that you've got these really concrete goals and that you've got over, you know, 60, 62%, I think you said of, you know, it, it, it feels like there's progress, which is good. Yeah, and just to even build on that, maybe end on this, uh, the predecessor to Textiles 2030 that I mentioned, the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan, very catchy name, clearly, but um, the, the, that had uh, less ambitious goals because it was coming from a position of no goals, if, you, mm. if that makes any sense, um, and, and maybe less impetus to, to make progress. But uh, the, the, there were 15% reductions there in carbon and water oh, wow. footprints. Um, and that was from 2012 to 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we we beat both of those in that time frame. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so that that agreement had uh, less than than the 62 percent of the market mm-hmm. that we now have for this current agreement. But it, it's possible, I think, is the message I'm yeah. saying that that we had a goal, we measured against it, we acted to make sure that we beat those goals. So it's doable, and, and we're we're going to work our hardest to make sure we do it again. That is indeed a brilliant place to end. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And, you know, thank you guys for for doing what you're doing and for, you know, trying to pull everything together and everyone together and get people acting ahead of government legislation, which often is too too little, too slow, isn't it? Yeah, I, I the way that we view it is that you need to have something to bring up the lowest level, but you mm. also need someone to pull the, the most ambitious along faster. And that government plays the role of bringing up the bottom and yes. we're trying to pull the furthest ahead faster. I think yeah. that's hopefully the, uh, the way to, to, to view it in the most positive way. I, as a person, I would, I would wish the government could go faster, but uh, there are all sorts of reasons why they, they, they don't or can't. And um, 
the, the sort of politics involved. So, yeah, maybe I should, should uh, leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much, Sam. Um, thank you for the time. And yeah, um, you need to get back to those twins, don't you? <laughs> yeah, go and, go and change a nappy. Yeah. You've been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time. Bye.